All right, nice to see you all. Uh, welcome here as we uh, continue with our study of the book of Mark here. Uh, just kind of a quick review from where we were last time. If you recall, uh, we're now into um, chapter 3. We talked about uh, last time about a great crowd following Jesus. And recall, it, before that, Jesus heals the man uh, with a withered hand. And then, um, then at this point, it's, we see this real opposition. The Pharisees, they join up with the Herodians, and now they are out to destroy Jesus. So this is kind of now the context where we are. We're seeing this now real shift. I'm just questioning and stuff to now that the, the plot the plot is in, in place, and we're going to see this develop more and more over Mark, and obviously know, we know where that comes out. Um, so then after that, even though, though Jesus, um, we talked about uh, where a great crowd follows Jesus, where he goes out uh, to the sea, um, and again, this, it's, the crowd, even though there's this opposition, he's still got uh, quite the, the crowd. The crowd is coming to him. The news of Jesus is really spreading. Uh, people them are all coming, as we talked about, from all even outside of Galilee, and not just the Jews, but all the people, the Gentiles, are really starting to flock to Jesus. So this is, you know, as I've said before, somewhat now of a celebrity, right? Um, and then it, after this, we see we we talked about Jesus calling the twelve apostles. You call how we did that. Uh, talked about how Jesus Himself is calling them, demonstrating His divine. Divine authority, and he's picking the peop- his people who he chooses. We talked about the significance of the number twelve. Remember about the the uh, twelve tribes of Israel. Uh, we discussed what the word apostle meant from the Greek uh, Greek uh, apostello, which is was also similar. I showed to that Hebrew word uh, shiliac. So we, we see this in, in both the Sheliacs in the Old Testament and then now uh, these apostles in the New Testament and what both of those words mean. It's a, a person who is sent with this great commission, you know, a real endorsement of the one who's, uh, who sent them. Okay, and then we saw that, that now the apostles, Jesus has given the apostles a true a mission to preach, number one, and then two, to have authority to cast out demons. We talked about that. Then we went through all the 12. I can make little tidbits on each of the 12, kind of who they were uh, and, and where they came from. Then after that, we moved into the next section. You see in your study note that the top is, is entitled Blasphemy Against the Holy Spirit. Uh, we talked about how Jesus um, uh, uh, cast out uh, a person that was Possessed by this Beelzebub, we talked about. We talked about kind of what that means as a designation uh, for Satan. Um, then we saw then next, in response to this, when the, when the scribes said to Jesus, well, how, how can you cast out, or you're casting out, how can Satan cast out Satan? Remember that accusation? Then we kind of see these three, they're not really parables. We're going to get into parables today. These kind of three pre-parables, I guess, as I say, that show Jesus is kind of showing the contradiction about how Satan can cast out Satan. If you guys recall that, we saw the first pre-parable about how a kingdom divided against itself. Then we saw a house divided against itself and then the strong man. And all three of those ultimately showing that Jesus was demonstrating that really that the power of God was greater than the power of Satan and that Satan's kingdom was being destroyed here by the work of Jesus. And we'll know that that continues to. Uh, then we briefly ended last time with this discussion on blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And recall, I said that this isn't just this some simple thing. If you're worried about it, this doesn't apply to you. You know, this is unforgivable sin. And this is not even just merely unbelief. This is a persistent, continued rejection of the gospel which then is sin that can't be forgiven. But again, it sounds scary to us, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and this idea of an unforgiven sin. But uh, if you're worried about it, it doesn't apply to you, right? It's only those people that don't care about it and continual rejection of the gospel message. So, okay, then which brings us to today? We're going to talk about Jesus' mother and his brothers. But before we do, Why don't we begin with an invocation in the Lord's Prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. 
thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so if you have your Bible with you, why don't you turn to Mark chapter 3. And beginning with verse 31 here, you see the, the way it's been labeled in our Lutheran study Bible and probably other ones is Jesus' mothers and brothers. Okay, so again, this takes place really in the midst of now a series of controversies between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. Okay, we, we've talked about that. Okay, and then this kind of a little curveball is put in here the way I see it when I first read it. It's like, wow, what a kind of curveball out of nowhere. But then it does kind of make sense when we kind of look at it. So what we see here is, I'm going to read it, but first, you know, Jesus here is confronted by his, whole, his own family. Okay, and, and, and it's kind of surprising what we see what's going on, even with his own family. So we've talked about religious leaders now, and, and now we're going to see that Jesus' own family are somewhat problematic. Okay, so let me read through it here, and then we'll kind of, we'll, we'll, we'll go through it line by line. So uh, verse 31, chapter 3, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, who is Jesus, and they said to him, Jesus, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Interesting, huh? And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Kind of interesting, right? We kind of forget about this. So curveball thrown in here. Let's kind of go through it here. See, so verse uh, 31 here. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Okay, so this, this verse really kind of sets the theme, the, the theme for what's going on in this passage. So Jesus and his mother, Mary Wright, and his brothers have come to see him. And then notice this, though. They are outside calling for him. Doesn't that strike you odd? I mean, why, why is Jesus' mother and brother, why can't they just go in, right? Go in, that's, that's Mary. This is his son. Go in. So very strange. Why don't they go in? Why, why are they standing outside? Well, we'll kind of see as we get to this. And it's because... Familial connections with Jesus, I think, here have become secondary, and his and, and his mother and his brothers know it, and that's why they, they're they're coming here to the scene and they're standing outside. So they they sense this too, and we'll see it. So further on this, um, we see his mother. We know who his mother and, and brothers came. So there's really some debate what this what what this means, who it is. Some the commentator says that they were in fact. Half siblings of Jesus, right? So if we think about Jesus was born, Jesus' father is not Joseph, right? We know Jesus' father is the heavenly father. So brothers could have been other children who Mary and Joseph had, although that's also debatable. I don't know if I want to get too much in it. Um, Some people believe, some theologians believe that Mary did not have further children. Um, but it seems like uh, a lot of the Lutheran theologians that I read say that that Mary and Joseph did, in fact, um, have other children together, so Jesus could have had half-siblings, but debated uh, within Christendom. I don't want to get too much in it. So anyway, that's what's going on here, brothers. In any event, it's either half-brothers or close relatives to here. Any further up or follow-up questions on that? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm- When he went home, then he went home, and the crowd gathered again right. so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. The family, I guess. 
Right, yeah, I talked, or talked about that saying, last who time. Who is they, we're saying, he's out of his mind. Yeah, his close family was. We, we talked okay. about this. This is yeah. his close Just family. Just verifying it. Yeah, so then later, close. that's why they're, I assume they were there to get him, or did, okay, so now this is down in Jerusalem. So Yeah, 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 he's, yeah, this is a movement here, there. Right, right. So different kind of cut in the scene, and now different place. He was so in a different place. So why, why did they, they would go with a group to Jerusalem, but were they still concerned about his sanity? I guess so, yeah, clearly. Okay. I mean, they're going on the concerned about what he was doing. Remember when we talked about this, it was kind of they were concerned about what he was doing, and he wouldn't stop and keep going. But now I think we're going to see a little even a bit of a more shift here in what they're saying. Okay, so good, good point. But yes, his family—that's the same family, brothers and his and his his mother, mother there. Okay, so good question. All right, so that's the brothers, and then we see also here in this verse here. So his mother and brother came. They were standing outside. We talked about how odd that was, and then they sent to him and they called him. Um, of course, the Greek word here is to call. It's kaleo. It's the same word that uh, Jesus uses to call his disciples to be his followers. And to summon uh, people to repentance. Now, I thought it was interesting, Dr. Veltz on this, said it is possible that call in this verse constitutes a call to Jesus to abandon his message. Could be, we'll see kind of a little bit more here in the way Jesus is saying there, but this, this is what this called him, they called him. It's good, his family thinks, you know, before he's out of his mind as we talked about, but now um, there's this real uh, confrontational mode to what's going on here. Okay, so verse 32 then, and we see there, And a crowd was sitting around him, who was Jesus, and they said to Jesus then, they're reporting to Jesus, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. So we see here uh, kind of now a stark contrast, right? This crowd, a stark contrast is drawn between the crowd that is in sitting around Jesus Versus, I can't you say a crowd, but his close family who is standing outside. So have that mental picture, okay, what's going on here. So look at this. The crowd then on the inside here is in the position of learners. Okay, they're with him. Jesus' family here is in the position, kind of postured in this position of a kind of the hostile authorities. And we'll see this in the next verse. So look at in the note on... Uh, our study Bible, 332. I think this is good. It says, Note the irony. People who barely knew Jesus are seated next to him, eagerly listening, while his family is outside, trying to get close enough to make him stop. Okay? So this is the, the, the mental picture going on here. So we hear furthermore now what's, what's going on. On verse 33, we see, uh, And Jesus answered them, who are my mother and brothers? This is interesting when he says, and he answered them. It can be kind of translated in the Greek in response, but it's, this, it's a verb, apokrithis. It means to answer, reply, or take up the conversation. And, and, and the commentators pointed this out to me, and this is interesting. This is the first time that this verb is used here in Mark. But what's more fascinating, it's going to, Jesus is going to use this more and more frequently, and it's mainly in hostile, hostile settings. Okay, So this is why an indication that the, uh, there, there's this hostility when Jesus is, is using this language, an indication that the, uh, the intentions of Jesus' family here are not innocent. There's some hostility there. So we see Jesus' response to the message that his family is outside looking for him is somewhat unexpected, right? Rather than immediately going to see them, he asks this rhetorical question, who are my mother and my brothers? And I, I think is what we'll see here. This It's kind of implying that, that it's kind of the overall theme here, the importance of the, the spiritual family over a biological family. And I'll follow up that in a minute here. Okay, so that's verse 33. Jesus asked this rhetorical question, kind of shocking. Um, so then we see in 34, 
Then, and he answers his own question, and looking at those who sat around him, he said, look at this, here are my mother and my brothers. So it can be translated, looking around with great personal interest at those sitting around him in a circle, he says, see my mothers and my brothers. An astonishing statement, right? And now the contrast in physical position is now complete. Jesus' biological family is standing outside, but we see here what he's saying that his true family is gathered around him in a night at this kind of tight-knit formation. Okay? All right. So then verse 35, we see kind of the, the end. Jesus is going to summarize this. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus' response to his own kind of questions emphasizes again that this spiritual family is more important than the biological family. And then he looks around the people that are sitting with him and following and said, these are my true family. Because why? He says there. They're doing God's will. And as we see in Mark's gospel, this is a key theme where Jesus often contrasts the faith and actions of the ordinary people with the religious leaders of the day. So by saying that those who do God's will are his true family, Jesus is emphasizing that the most important thing is, is this uh, following of God and to live a life of faith. Now, it's important, you can't use this to say Jesus is not saying that biological family is unimportant. No, but really it's in this context of God's greater family that's more important, even than biological, but certainly not saying that biological family is not important. And St. Paul kind of talks about this in Galatians 3, 26-29, when he writes, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to his promise. And that's what we are, right? And uh, uh, we are, we are in, in, in sons of God through, through Jesus and a part of that that uh, family. So I think that that's the significance here. Uh, let's look at this study note. I think it does a really good job of kind of uh, putting our arms around this. Um, it says, you'll see the study note on 331 through 35. It says, loyalty to God takes precedence over loyalty to blood re- relations. This is still hard to hear today as the temptations to put relationships with family and friends above God can be overwhelming, but the Lord wants us to have both relationships and have them as healthy as they can be. He stands first in our lives because he placed himself last to humbly bear our sins and make us children of God. So isn't that good? Good stuff. So any questions on that or any further up thoughts here? Mm-hmm. Okay, in light of the fact that uh, Mary says, you know, I, the Magnificat, mm-hmm. okay, and that's wonderful. We sing it. Right. But then uh, I'm thinking of the, um, when Christ stayed behind at the temple. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she was, we've been looking for you she and so mad, forth. Right? And now this incident. Mm-hmm. And then also at the end, at the cross, he still says, take care of my mother. Yeah, right. She doesn't. So that he maintains both both levels. Good but, point, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, when, um, let me gather my thoughts here. When the Roman Catholic Church emulates her to this point, but this would be an argument, this would be an argument that she should not be emulated that way, when she d- did not approach the level of Christ's understanding. True, right. But they give her that elevation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
And I think a lot of people, I mean, I think even the disciples, we're going to see this, you know, as when especially getting the parables. I mean, still, and I probably with respect to Mary, too, they still don't really understand who or what this guy is. And we're going to see this. all. It isn't really till after Jesus's death and resurrection to where, you know. So, and, you know, where we put Mary into this, I mean, that's certainly debatable within histor- historical on both sides. Was she, you know, without sin? Uh, was she with sin? Um, you know, we, we don't know, but here clearly she's, I mean, Jesus is still kind of rebuking her, right? I mean, the, at this point. So clearly at the end of the day, she's there with Jesus on the cross. And once, of course, some, the, who I can't remember who it was, a James to take care of her. Uh, so noting still, but yeah, at this point, it's very interesting. Uh, the, what the motivations of Jesus's family were doing there in this time is pretty, pretty shocking, right? Probably just, they still didn't understand who and what he ultimately was going to do. So I think that's kind of what's going on here. So, Chris, did you have a follow-up question? Oh, yeah, just uh, uh, in the um, kind of genre of um, Jesus' family relations with his earthly, like, near family. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I don't remember, excuse me, uh, exactly where it was, but there's a passage where his brothers, I guess, are going to the temple, and they say, come with us. And he says, oh, you go ahead. Mm-hmm. And then he then goes by a different way, kind of, you know, mm-hmm. without them knowing. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what the context exactly was, but I'm just yeah, filing I'm that a, along with these I'm to, yeah, yeah. these instances where it describes. Because there, again, it's kind of... he's. He's putting himself at a distance from them, mm-hmm. so it seems related. But I'm not. Yeah, I think that. I don't recall it. exactly mm-hmm. why he did that. Yeah. Well, I think ultimately he knew what his purpose was, right? Going to the cross, and nothing was going to hinder that. So, whether your family or what, so I think it's that's right. But clearly, and we're going to see too as we get in the as I just said into the parables. I mean, at this point, people do Jesus is showing his power, he's healing and stuff, and teaching all this, and yeah. He's become a celebrity, but I still don't think that the apostles don't understand what his true mission is. And we're going to see that over and over. I mean, Jesus even predicts his death to them, and they don't. And Peter rebukes him. I mean, we see this throughout. So um, I think that's kind of this whole motif that we're going to see here, even as affecting his close family. So. Could be, yeah. I mean, that's another thing, too. And we talked about the secrecy, secrecy narrative where Jesus said, hey, don't tell anybody. I mean, it is, because you know, anything to affect this timeline that was in place, that ultimately where he's going, we know, especially as we come in Holy Week, we know where he's heading, right? He's heading to the cross. So, yeah, that's right. Good point. So, okay. Any other questions or any other thoughts on that or follow-up or discussion? All right. I think you can see Jesus' mother and brothers acting in a very loving way here uh, based on what's preceded because you've got the scribes that come down, they charge him of being demon-possessed. You know, all this is going on, and these people aren't people to be trifled with. When Jerusalem comes down, I mean, we see what they ultimately are capable of and what they ultimately do. So word of this is spreading around. Mm-hmm. It is quite possible to read Jesus' mother and his brothers in absolute love going to like, hey, we heard what's going on. Are you okay? We want you mm-hmm. like, you know, we want you to be safe kind yeah. of thing. Right. And then and if if that's the case or to whatever extent it's the case, then you have, you know, Jesus not being hostile to his mother and brothers but in a catechetical sense, drawing a distinction between the love of an earthly family versus the love of the heavenly family. And to be sure, the heavenly family triumphs, right? These are my mm-hmm. mother and brother and sisters. Um, so that if you had to, if you were even to like contrast the love, the love of one is proper and appropriate for earthly physical um, relations to want to keep you earthly, physically safe. Mm-hmm. But Jesus is saying, I have a higher family and a higher calling than that, right? So it right. can be seen, and I mean, again, you, just depending on how you read it, it can be seen as more or even less um, confrontational. Good point. 
Good. Any follow-up on that? Or any question? Good. Thank you. All right. So then we move on to kind of now a, a new uh, look here on kind of a new way of looking at things and what Jesus is going to do. So if you turn on now, uh, that concludes uh, chapter 3. Uh, we look at it uh, starting with Mark 4. And here we are coming up. There's going to be a whole slew of parables we'll go through. I'm going to start kind of slow on, on the first few. We may kind of speed up a little bit and then we'll, we'll get into it. So let's go through these a bit. But before we do, if you have your Lutheran Study Bible with you, I just think that this is good. If you can turn to page 1609. And we see uh, here that the uh, Lutheran Study Bible has kind of, kind of again, a little explanation of the parables of our Lord, it says here. Uh, just let me read a couple things here, just to kind of put this in context, and then we'll go through the parable of sower. So if you look on the right-hand side, and those that don't have it with you, I mean, there's a, a big chart that shows all the parables. And look, there's a lot of them, you know, for Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I think there's one in John, too, but that's not included. So we see all the parables, 55 total parables, a lot of parables. So, of course, we're not going to go through all those because not all those are included in Mark. And if you see the list, actually Mark has probably the, the least number. So we'll hit those. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, when you add them all together, there's 55 uh, parables. So let's, let's see here what this says about parables. It says, The differences between parables, allegories, similes, and metaphors are not easily defined. There often is scarcely any difference. In a technical sense, the word parable comes from the Greek uh, parabole. Ordinarily means a complete uh, imaginary story that illustrates some spiritual truth. But the word originally signified the placing of two or more objects together for the sake of comparison. In the Gospels, parables are typically, one, allegorical stories that reveal how God is inaugurating his heavenly reign on earth through Jesus, okay? Or two, such a story teaching disciples how they should live in view of God's reign. Uh, The public preaching of our Lord assumed the general characteristic of speaking in parables, For example, and we'll see this first when we go through it. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. Uh, This is clearly seen in the synoptic gospels. However, only one parabolic saying appears in the gospel of John, the good shepherd. And it says the charter right shows. So that's kind of what uh, we're looking at on parables here when we go through. This is a good introduction. So pretty cool uh, thing. If you're interested in all the parables looking over, it's got a nice, like I said, chart outlining all 55. So uh, that being said, why don't we go here and we'll, we'll talk about uh, the parable of uh, the sower here. So Mark 4 actually here, we get this, is actually laying the, the foundation for Jesus' teaching and parables and, and, and what they're about. And, and then kind of in this context, how, how we look at other parables. These right here at the beginnings are the, are the main ones, the parable of the sower. So what's interesting in chapter 4 here, the parable of the sower, um, com- as compared to other parables, this one really is, is uh, Jesus tells the parable, we'll see, and then he gives the purpose for why he tells parables, and then he actually interprets line by line what he means by the parable of the sower. Now he doesn't do that as much with the remainder of them, but this is kind of the heart of the parables, and as we'll see. So when we study then the parable of the sower, I'm hoping to get through this today, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to go through the first verses 1 through 9. It's just we're not going to decode it, okay, because Jesus decoded. I don't know if that may be a cheesy word, or Jesus interprets it his own. So I'm not going to stand up here and go through the first and interpret it. Let's just go through the first of it, kind of talk about, what the imagery is in terms of this, maybe give you a little lesson in agricultural during the time in this area. And then we'll get into the purpose of the parable here. And then we'll see how Jesus interprets it. So, so bear with me here. So at the beginning then, let's look at the first verses 1 through 9. And then, and then we'll get into Jesus interpreting it. I won't be interpreting it, but Jesus will. Okay. So why don't I'll read... Uh, 
the parable of sower, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. And again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain." And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, and Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, we've heard this before, right? Okay, but let's let's go through it here. Kind of line by line, just look at it kind of um, from the outside of what, how Jesus is speaking this to, to these people in, the, in this area in his time and kind of look at it that way. So uh, let's start with uh, verse 1. And Jesus began to teach beside the sea and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. So, of course, we've heard of the boat before, right? It's another time. But a couple things note about this we should, we should be noticed here is first, really on a, a practical level, we see, again, a very large crowd, uh, and, and really gathered about him. Him be translated, a giant crowd begins to gather to him, with the result then he gets in the boat. Some commentators kind of see this as, Possibly some negative, threatening type behavior going on. The crowd just not gathering around Jesus, but they gather to or even against him. So that might be kind of the context of looking at this, maybe. Second, we see then again he gets in the boat. Um, then think about it, gets out the boat, then kind of a pulpit for Jesus, where then the shore is the auditorium. And it was here that now Jesus is going to speak in a number of parables. Kind of had that mental Maybe a natural auditorium, him in the boat and the shore. Well, that's what's, what's going on here, okay? So verse 2 then, And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them. Okay, so we looked at the parables kind of in the introduction in the Lutheran Study Bible, so we kind of see what the parables are. But clearly then this represents kind of a new element in his teaching style, right? Namely, the parables, um, new, new way of teaching. All right. Verse 3 then says, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. Uh, the Greek word, akua ete, uh, it's listen up. Um, and, but he uses this, this listen here, and I think this is very cool. I don't think it's accidental that he uses hear here. Because we remember back in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6.4, we, we know this verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this is the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. Okay? And the, the Israelites knew this package, hear this passage well. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Jews would have known this. I mean, this is the Shema, right? It's a very important and so this actually was an early creed of Israel's faith in God. Deuteronomy 6.4, hear, O Israel. So very short, early creedal statement that the Jews around Jesus' time would have known this too. And here Jesus is using kind of the same language. Hear, right? Hear, hear. Uh, listen, hear. Same word though. So, and again, Deuteronomy 6.4 was spoken by Moses. So, in this verse, arguably, some of the commentators say there is an indication that a prophet such as Moses uh, is in the people's midst here, in Jesus, and he speak, when he speaks, um, it's this address of God to his people. So, some neat, neat uh, things to point out there uh, from the commentaries, so... Here he says, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. 
A sower, what is a sower? I mean, I know it's a little elementary, but those that don't, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to think. A sower, what they were saying, it's just a farmer planting seed. Don't, didn't have the big combines or whatever we have today, but, you know, they're doing it probably by hand, sowing, laying the seed down. The, the field would have been previously plowed in some way, either by hand or, you know, um, the cattle pulling or something. But anyways, plowed, now the, seed, the sower's out. It's just planting seed, we know that. Hint here, I told you I wasn't going to decode it, but when we look through this, let's look at the sower representing Jesus, who comes, right, to sow the gospel message. Okay. Um, that was an early hint. So then we see a, a sower here went out to sow, again, planting seed. Uh, verse 4 then. So this is our first category here. Um, and he sowed, and as he sowed, in verse 4, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Okay, so let's now look at this. This is in the Palestine area, right, in Jesus' time, the Holy Land. Part of the region is known as Cana, where the kingdom of Israel and Judah are located. So this is kind of where he is. So we're kind of thinking of this in terms of what Jesus is talking to. The grain is sown by hand, as I said. The field, obviously, is where the seed grows. So along the field runs maybe a walking path, which you maybe could divide another man's field or something, but that's a path here. So in this sowing, picture the farmer going up and down. When he, when he throws or whatever, obviously the seed falls along this walking path. And of course, it's not covered up, and it's eagerly eaten by the birds. Okay, I'm not, we're not going to translate it now. We're just talking about it. We'll, we'll hear what Jesus says, what this means. So that's the mental picture we have to have, okay? You guys got that mental picture? All right, now let's go on to verses 4, 5 through 6, which is the next um, soil we're going to look at. Other seed then falls on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. So picture this in this Palestinian area. Uh, one of the commentators says that there, this is, when you're thinking about it, that, that there is a rocky elevation in that area, so that even when the, the fields were tilled, there could be spots that just had this natural underlying rock that came up into the field. Okay, Some soil might get on it a little bit, so it's only got thin soil. So then when you have this thin soil, right, and the seed is, is thrown on it, the seed will sprout up quickly. This is interesting because the warmth of the underlying rock, which is coming through, the film, the soil helps kind of heat, right? So it helps it start up real quick, but then there's rock. There's no roots to go down. And then when it comes up, the hot sun of the area burns this young growth and, and it withers before it has sufficient root, okay? So picture that field, the rock's there. Again, mental picture going on here. So that's what that is. Okay, Verse 7 then, Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. So other spots, think about this field, rocks maybe, some thorns that were in the area that did not escape the plow. So when they went through, we know this in our own gardens or yard, right? <laughs> so we, we didn't get all the roots of the thorns out this field. So the, the, these, these thorns are there. And then when the grain is thrown down, the, um, the weeds and thorns come and, what is it, choke. So the Greek word here is panigo. I think it's kind of hard to pronounce. It's interesting. It, it actually is, has to do with strangling or to wring one's neck. Okay, So that's the mental picture here. The, uh, the, root, the uh, thorns wring the neck of this. Uh, new new plant that's growing up. All right. Any questions so far? Do I? You guys have the mental picture here. Again, I'm just painting the middle picture. Four eight here, and then we see this one. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. So the good soil, the Greek, it's. Uh, Tain, kalain, it can be translated rich earth. Here is the fruitful yield of the seed in this rich earth. Interesting to note, though, this 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold, um, this is 
based on the Palestinian yield crops. When you think of this language, yields such as these were remarkable or even miraculous and wouldn't happen, according to Dr. Veltz. So this, this, when you see this increasing 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold, this is like a bumper crop, right? Maybe even would never even happen. So when we hear this, that we're producing 30 and 60, this isn't just some normal year that these guys, this was like an unbelievable amount of production that happened, okay? So that, that mental picture. All right. Any questions up to this point? I'm painting this mental picture. Anyone? Everybody got it? Um, so I guess a, a few notes here to note then before we move on. So at this point, when we see all these different scenarios here, note that both the bad soils and the good soils coexist. Right? Could be the rocky soil here and then the maybe thorns over here, but then there are some, some rich soils. So the co- coexistence going on. Um, also, it's very. This is very important when we look at this and this growing and all these situations. Is anything wrong with the seed itself here? Is it the seed that's causing the problem? You guys shaking your head. No, right? It's not the seed that's calling, causing the problem. So that's important to note when we move on over. So remember, the exact same seed is scattered and falls on different soils, which then, based on the different soils, they act differently, right? So it's, the problem is not the seed. So the problem in this situation, this picture that Jesus has painted for us, is the problem is with the soils. All right? Good. All right, and then Jesus concludes that with says, And Jesus said... He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Or translated, he who has ears actually to hear, let him hear. So Jesus' admonition then, concluding this parable, is directed to the, to the one who has ears to hear. Well, who's that? Right? Who's that? And it's going to become clear as we go through 10 and 11 here and the remainder of it. But... Given the preceding context that we talked about, Jesus' mother and his brothers, and that Jesus' circle in the twelve, you know, arguably, you know, it's these people that are following Jesus, and also the reader and hearer Mark's gospels. Note the admonition here: He who has ears actually to hear, let him hear. Um, is that the admonition to listen to the description given by Jesus? Right, that's what he's saying here. Listen to what I'm telling you. Okay. Keeping, keeping Jesus in focus, both, both as the lead character in the parable and as the terror of the parable, keeping interpretation heading in the right direction, focusing on Jesus here as the lead character and the terrible, the teller of the parable. Okay. So any questions at this point forward? Mm-hmm. I found this very interesting when you said this is like a creed. Oh, yeah, the, the Shema. And this is like Shema. saying, hear, O Israel, again, in mm-hmm. other words. Yeah, good point. Yeah, that is a match, right? Hear, O Israel. That's, yeah, the Shema. Hear, hear, O Israel. Hear these words, okay? He who has ear, hear. So he's saying, listen here, keep focus, but again, keep in focus on Jesus as in the story and Jesus telling the story here. Okay. So then now we see, we kind of have a shift here. There's kind of a sandwich. We have the story and the purpose of the parables, and then he's going to interpret them. So let's look at the purpose of the parables. Uh, Jesus, uh, in response to an inquiry by those closest to him, explains why he's undertaken to speak this way, to talk and speak in parables. And then he proceeds again to interpret it, as I said. So verse 10, here we see... um, and when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest that they should turn and be forgiven." Okay, let's look at this section, then as we see in the next section, he goes into the interpretation. So just a few comments here. Verse 10, and when he was alone, and those around him with the twelve, 
Again, here it seems Jesus begins to foster maybe this insider-outsider separation uh, that we've talked about here. Um, but we also see in verse uh, here in the study note, the study note does a good job here on 410. See on 410 at the bottom here. Uh, the disciples still do not have ears to hear and so had to ask Jesus for an explanation about the parable of the sower. Perhaps because they were too embarrassed to reveal their lack of understanding in public, they asked Jesus for an explanation in private. Okay? So then we see verse 11. Then in response to this question, uh, Jesus says, And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, inside outsider, everything is in parables. So we talked about this, uh, this uh, kingdom of God before, but before I get into that, it says uh, it should be translated, it can be translated to you as be given the mystery, okay? It's supposed to secret, the mystery of the kingdom of God. It's mysterion in Greek. So, so Jesus tells his disciples, both the 12 apostles and others, that to them the mystery has been given and implies that they're that it has not been given to those outside, the unbelieving Pharisees and the other multitudes, has been given, can maybe seen as some divine grace. Of course, human beings cannot understand this divine revelation except by gaining insight by God himself through his word. And again, this verse is an indication of really the, the sovereignty of God and revealing truth to his people. God reveals himself and his truth through his word to his people. And because of this, they have a deeper understanding of the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But, of course, we don't have all the understanding, right? There is still mystery, even today. But again, those who are not God's people will only see these parables as mere stories, not have no clue what's going on. Okay? Another thing, the mystery of the kingdom. Okay? Um, the good news that God in his dealing with man has now sent the one who will be the Savior and Redeemer, and that one is Jesus Christ. Again, this was promised in the Old Testament, and now it's revealed through Christ when he's come in his work. But, but even though Christ is here, the mystery is not yet an open book, as I talked about. And again, as we're going to see, the disciples, really it's only after the, the death and resurrection and, and it's ascension of Jesus, do they really understand this more fully? So, okay. So then in verse uh, 12, Jesus quotes um, Isaiah 6, uh, 9 through 10. He says, so that they may indeed be, excuse me, they may indeed, indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So Isaiah 6, 9 through 10 almost says the same thing. It says, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of the people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So I think uh, what's going on here is Jesus, Jesus is quoting this Isaiah 6, 9 to 10 to actually show that he was fulfilling scripture and when he spoke in parables. Again, the Lord commissioned Isaiah uh, to preach to Israel, knowing that the people would not understand what they heard or saw from him. So Jesus taught the unbelieving crowds here in parables uh, because they continued to reject him. So... Really, I think this verse is really a sobering reminder of the consequences of rejecting God's word. Those who reject God's truth are willfully blind to it, and that blindness prevents them from turning to God in repentance and being forgiven. All right? Okay, so that's there. So um, any questions on that or follow-up? So, um, like the note in 410 says the disciples did not have ears to hear. Right. Mm -hmm. And then um, then Jesus gave them ears to hear? or how did Well, I think eventually, I mean, after the death and resurrection, they understand fully what's, go what's going on. But I think Jesus does, when he explains, get, he lets them hear. But I think at this point, they didn't have 
ears to hear in their unbelief or not really understanding the significance of Jesus. And Pastor knows this really good too. Pastor, am I on the right kind of thought on that? Did you catch that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. Can we? The, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Sorry. So are they in this? Uh, they may indeed see but not perceive. Are they in that group then, or not anymore? I think at this point they are. Yeah. <laughs> and then this is why we see then Jesus. I think. I don't know if he's upset or what. He goes around and he, then he turns and expl- explains it all to them. So yeah, this is the state that they are, and actually everyone who's hearing it at this point is right. Good point. Well, look at Peter, right? I mean, denying Christ three times and after the resurrection. I mean, he really comes out swinging, right? I mean, it is, it is preaching and his teaching and, you know, pointing the finger at the Jews and say, you crucified him, right? I mean, we do see a shift. We look back on our lives and say, oh, my goodness, I, we didn't, I didn't realize this. But Christ is the one who saves us. And even if our faith is defective, like the person said, I believe, help my unbelief, Christ will save us even though we don't completely understand. I mean, I don't think any, I don't think anybody outside of, you know, anybody completely has understand. And we won't, we won't completely understand until we're, you know, in heaven and can ask these questions, you know. I mean, like, why, why save some and not others? I mean, we don't know, right? We, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of mysteries that we don't know. But we just, you know, can always look in our baptism and think, Say thank you for saving me in my baptism, right? The assurance of that. Good point. Okay. Good. All right. So then kind of the next section here. Let me just, let's look at this first. Uh, first, and, then, and unfortunately, we're probably not going to have, I'm going to have to leave you guys with a cliffhanger on what we've been talking about. That's too bad. But next time we come, we can hear actually Jesus tell us what, what he's saying here, which I think we kind of know. So, But verse 13, then, what does he do? He says, and he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Um, one commentator says this verse records Jesus' first rebuke of his closest followers and, and the twelve. And of course, we'll see this more um, as, we, as we progress in later in Mark where he will rebuke the twelves. So here is when Jesus turns then to explaining the parables to disciples. Uh, where, and I think maybe you can see where he's, I don't know if he's disappointed they don't understand it. I mean, some commentators say that. I'm not sure I'm buying that. Let's look at four, uh, the study notes then on 413. I think it does a good job. When Jesus says, how then will you understand? And again, it goes back to our point, I think, earlier. Until the disciples believe that Jesus is the Messiah and interpret his teaching in light of his sacrificial suffering and death, you see that, we're building up to the cross, then they will never comprehend anything about him. In fact, much of the unfolding plot in Mark involves the struggle even of his own disciples to accept that the Messiah will be rejected and crucified. Um, So, okay. So we got uh, a minute here. Um, I think maybe it might be wise if you guys are okay that we kind of leave it at this cliffhanger. This will make see, that's what they do on Netflix. You know, they do a series, and then at the end they this group. So this is I'm going to stop it here, and then guarantee you have to come back next week to <laughs> to find out actually what this all means and when Jesus tells us and he, and he tells us what's going on here. So any further uh, follow up questions on where we are? And I, I promise as we get into other parables, I'll move a little quicker because I know we still got a long way to get through Mark. So, But I did want to take a lot of time on this first one and then kind of talk about it. And then we'll kind of jump through the other parables quickly. And then we'll get to Jesus calming a storm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have to say I'm glad you brought up baptism because it reminds me, you know, in baptism, if we're baptized as infants, God is the one who saves us by his word. (laughs) And I remember Pastor Rody talking about a a child jumping in or wanting to be with his mom and stuff, or his dad. It's unexpressed, but it's demonstrated, you know, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing, our relationship. (laughs) I like it. All right. Well, listen, thank you all. Hope you have a great week, and uh, the Lord be with you.